0: Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements author-in-the-room conference call. My name is Sarah, and I'll be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touch tone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is Executive Director of the Trust for Healthcare Excellence and the CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon. He's a senior faculty of, with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead.
1: Thank you, Sarah, and welcome, everyone. Uh, once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As Sarah said, my name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are des- designed to translate new knowledge or what is published in a recent JAMA article into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on April 15th, tax day for all of us. Uh, and the article for next month's call will be Self-Care of Physicians Caring for Patients at the End of Life, published in today, uh, March 18th, issue of JAMA, so we look forward to that call. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Uh, Steve Schroeder, and uh, his article, which we'll be discussing, is a 51-year-old woman with bipolar disorder who wants to quit smoking. Welcome, Dr. Schroeder. Along with us today is Dr. Douglas Zadonis, and Dr. Zadonis is not an author on the paper, but he'll be joining us for the conversation as a close colleague of Dr. Schroeder and someone who's been involved in this work for a long time. Dr. Schroeder is a distinguished professor of health and healthcare in the Division of General Internal Medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. And he also has the Smoking Cessation Leadership Center that works with leaders from more than 50 American health professional organizations and healthcare institutions. Dr. Schroeder really needs no introduction for most of us. He was previously the President and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and has a very distinguished uh, uh, career in uh, clinical medicine and uh, uh, many other aspects of health policy and health services research. Dr. Zedonis is professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and UMass Memorial Medical Center. Dr. Zidonis is an internationally recognized leader in co-occurring mental illness and addiction, and in particular, tobacco dependence. Uh, as a moderator, it is my job to focus our discussion on the application of this uh, content, Dr. Uh, Schroeder's article and the content within with the goal of driving performance improvement based uh, on this article. Once again, author in the room is designed for you to hear directly from the authors about their research so that we can move this more effectively into clinical care. Uh, here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Uh, Schroeder will give us about a 10-minute overview summarizing his article. Uh, We'll have just a few more comments thereafter to draw out some of the implications, uh, and then we'll move on to your questions and answers. I want to stress how important your participation is on these calls. Uh, This is a great forum to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from Dr. Schroeder and to contemplate with others the significance of these findings and the steps that we might take to put this information towards improved clinical care. There are approximately 75 lines uh, on the call today with several individuals per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as podcasts. Complete details are available on their websites. So let's get started. Let me once again introduce Dr. Stephen Schroeder, who will provide an overview of his, author, uh, of his article. Dr. Schroeder.
2: A triple thanks. Thanks to you, Chuck, for having uh, this uh, subject on the Meet the Author series. Uh, Thanks to my colleague, Doug Zidonis for joining me as a content expert. And thanks to all of you who care enough about this issue, which has been, frankly, off the radar screen way too long, and I can think of very few other issues that have such potential upside health benefit if we make a difference on them. So let me do a brief summary of my uh, paper, which was in the February 4th issue of JAMA. Uh, First of all, as background, smoking among patients with mental illness, as I'm sure all the people on this call know, is a major and underappreciated public health problem. Uh, Doug and our center have independently estimated that approximately 200,000 of the 443,000 annual deaths from smoking occur in this population, that is, people with mental illness and or substance abuse. Uh, The same people with serious mental illness die on average about 25 years earlier than the general population, and their are their deaths are generally not from suicide or homicide. Uh, they're from uh, cardiovascular illnesses, COPD, diabetes, all of which are either uh, e- either smoking has a major cause in or can certainly complicate. Uh, smoking rates in the mental illness population are extremely high. Uh, they tend to be from 50 to 80 percent. Uh, And in general, the more severe the psychiatric condition, the higher the rate of smoking. So for example, persons with schizophrenia uh, can have uh, rates of smoking over 80%. Uh, Patients with mental illness and or substance abuse disorders are uh, a disproportionate share of the tobacco market and the industry knows this. Although they um, constitute generously about a fifth of the population of the United States They consume 44% of all the cigarettes uh, that are bought here and smoked here. And uh, why do they do that? Well, they have, as I mentioned, higher rates of smoking. Uh, They also tend to smoke more cigarettes, so they're more of the heavy smokers. And they also smoke them down to the butt. So um, if you look at an ashtray in a uh, psychiatric hospital or outside of an AA meeting, um, you will notice that there's very little cigarette left next to that filter. Uh, it 's interesting, and I'm sort of sad that um, the mental health treatment culture has a long history of tolerating smoking among these patients. in that respect it 's almost like the uh, military where both cultures permitted and subtly encouraged the sort of the smoke them if you 've got them and in mental health it 's been that uh, often the staff smoke too, they go outside for smoke breaks, um, and it 's been felt that in uh, and, and cigarettes and mental in- institutions have been often used as a reward for good behavior, as a punishment, that is you can't go out for your smoke if, you're, if you violated rules. They've been used for uh, as a sexual barter. Uh, so there's a really a, an inglorious history here. Um, and I think part of the reason they were so tolerated was a sense among clinicians and the family that this was one of the few pleasures left to these patients. So it's sort of a Poor old Uncle John, he's had a sad life, cigarettes are his friend, let's not take that away from him. But things are changing now, we're in a sea change, and why does that happen? Well one is the science on secondhand smoke, that we know that um, secondhand smoke is a, is a factor in about 50,000 of those 443,000 deaths, and they, exposure to secondhand smoke does a whole host of problems. Including if the woman is pregnant, um, um, being her having her more prone to premature infants, to sudden death syndrome, uh, sudden infant death syndrome, uh, obviously higher rates of cancers, uh, and in particular heart disease. So a very low exposure uh, to secondhand smoke by people who are precluded, who are uh, have a precondition that is have a tendency for heart disease, either uh, clots in their carotid or their coronary arteries. Uh, there'll be vascular changes and the platelets will become more sticky and they're much more inclined to have, to have heart attacks. Um, the other bit of science that has accelerated uh, making this an issue of concern is the recent uh, study that showed that persons with a serious mental illness die on average about 25 years earlier than the rest of the population. And I had mentioned a huge chunk of that is from smoking. Uh, What we hadn't realized until recently is most of these patients would like to quit. And recent uh, surveys that we've helped to to sponsor show that about 70% of patients, for example, with chronic uh, depression or bipolar illness would like to to quit. That's about the comparable rate of smokers in the general population. There's also a trend now for psychiatric hospitals to go smoke-free. Three years ago, 41% were were smoke-free. Now it's 49% and that number is going up. Uh, There was a lot of concern when uh, psychiatric hospitals were going to go smoke-free, that it would make patient care worse, that there'd be violence, there'd be episodes. In fact, the reverse has happened. Uh, Discipline is easier when cigarettes are out of the mix, um, and in fact, staff have more time to do therapeutic contacts and not have to worry about uh, caring about the, the cigarette issue. Um, there are a number of uh, things that are special to smoking and smoking cessation among the, the mentally ill. One is uh, the question of does smoking cessation exacerbate chronic mental illness? That is, if someone has a psychiatric condition and they stop smoking, will it get worse? And there are early data in the literature, which I go over in the paper, which raise uh, very high rates, that particularly with chronic depression, that the depression will get worse after stopping smoking. But more recent reviews and studies say no, and some the national experiment in the mental hospitals says no. There's also some controversy about whether patients need to be stabilized uh, with their psychiatric condition before they stop smoking. Uh, And, again, we're not sure about that. Some people say yes and some say no. It's interesting. This was a challenge for me as an author because JAMA is rigorous about making everything evidence-based, and yet um, there's a sort of a shocking lack of evidence around much of the issues of smoking and mental illness, and Doug knows that more than almost anyone, uh, and also a shocking underfunding by the NIH of this critically important issue. A second problem in dealing with uh, does uh, mental illness change after stopping smoking is that nicotine withdrawal can mimic the symptoms of chronic depression, Uh, and so uh, sadness, feelings of regret, uh, even suicidal thoughts. Um, There are some other issues about treatment uh, of smoking cessation treatment in this population. One is that... uh, Changes in smoking status can change blood levels of psychotropic medicines because um, the, um, the ingredients in cigarette smoke can activate the CYP246 uh, liver enzymes that deconjugate psychotropic medicines and other things like caffeine. So um, you wind up, if you're taking, if you're smoking and taking these medicines and getting blood levels, you're going to have to get more of the medicines than if you stop smoking. And one of the things that can happen, for example, if, if a patient is drinking six or seven cups of caffeinated coffee per day and stops smoking, their caffeine levels are going to be a lot higher, and they're going to feel jittery, and some of them may uh, link that to stopping smoking. But in fact, it's really that they're getting higher levels of caffeine, and the same holds for many of the psychotropic drugs, such as haloperidol and phenothiazine. Um, A a relatively unique aspect of mental health treatment that is not seen in uh, other parts of of medical care where the encounter is typically very brief is the encounters are longer, and there is the opportunity to splice in counseling for um, smoking cessation into the therapeutic meeting, and this is something that uh, we'd like to uh, see if it could be made uh, a more regular part of the therapeutic meetings. Uh, the other issue about uh, smoking, uh, about stopping smoking, is the uh, the telephone quit lines. So every state operates a telephone quit line, which is toll free, and it provides services. Uh, these are offered uh, to anyone who calls in, and most of the callers are smokers. A few of them are family, asking how they can get their spouses or their kids or their parents to, to stop smoking. You can dial these in any state by calling 1-800-QUIT-NOW. You'll get connected to a seasoned counselor who will do an empathic intake, um, will uh, spend 30 to 40 minutes. In some states, there's a fax referral system which occurs in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and others. Uh, In some states like California, if you're in the state Medicaid program and you uh, finish one of these uh, sessions, they will send send you a voucher so that you can get free nicotine replacement therapy at your local pharmacy. Um, what we're not sure of is how effective uh, these quit lines work for, pe- for people who also have chronic mental illness, but we know now that the existing quit lines are getting a lot of such calls and that they're serving this population and for the most part doing it well. Um, re- regarding uh, medications, you know, what is the best way to treat people with mental illness who want to stop smoking? Uh, it's really pretty much what is true for people who don't have mental illness and want to stop smoking. That is, it's a combination of counseling and pharmacotherapy, and in the paper, I've listed the five different forms of nicotine replacement therapy, so-called NRT, plus the two uh, oral pills. Bupropion, which is known uh, by uh, its brand name Zyban, but this was an antidepressive that uh, was, uh, it was noticed that the depressed patients who were smoking who took this drug, bu- bu- bupropion, were, or well butrin as it's known in the, in the psychiatric literature, were less prone to want to smoke. The other one, the other oral pill is a more recent one. It's called v- Varenicline. It is a specifically designed drug to um, uh, be a partial ni- nicotine agonist, that is, it sits on the nicotine receptor in the brain, and it diminishes the hit that you get from a cigarette smoke, uh, and also it lessens the withdrawal symptoms from the nicotine. That latter drug um, is a controversy, uh, and the controversy is as such: it's been marketed very successfully by Chantix. There have been about seven million prescriptions that are uh, that have been cashed in. Uh, it clearly works in helping smokers quit. It's not been tested. For patients with mental illness, those patients were excluded in the trial. It's not been studied with other drugs, such as NRT or bupropion, although I am told that many uh, smoke cessation experts are using it in combination with these drugs as an off-label use. There have been a number of reports, uh, several hundred, of suicidal ideation and a smaller number of suicide. And that's a relatively small numerator, over 7 million, but it clearly is very concerning. Uh, It's very hard to distinguish this from symptoms of nicotine withdrawal or the fact that many of these patients may have mental illness anyhow. Uh, I'm told that Pfizer has trials underway for safety of this drug in chronic mental illness, but if the events are very infrequent, uh, we may not know. And so the FDA has issued a warning, as it has done for bupropion, to say um, people with... uh, a tendency or a concern about suicidal thoughts should be monitored more closely. And the FAA, the the Federal the Federal Aviation Agency, has said that pilots should not be using this drug. So moving on towards the end here, what are the quit rates of smokers? Well, the spontaneous unassisted quit rate for someone without mental illness going cold turkey is about 3% and my guess is it's slightly less than that for people who don't have mental illness. For drug trials, uh, the placebo arm, which is uh, a, an arm that gets a lot of good counseling but doesn't get any drug, runs 10 to 15%. And these are patients who are highly motivated or they wouldn't have drawn the, the, they wouldn't have volunteered for the study and also get lots of very good counseling, probably more than in the real world. So their rates are 10 to 15%. When you add um, a drug to this, whether it's one of the various forms of NRT or the two pills that I mentioned, the rates get up to 20 or 25%, and there is one study of triple therapy, which showed a patch, a short-acting NRT, and bupropion, which got up to 32%. Um, The trick is to motivate clinicians and smokers to do better and not to be dismayed by the fact that even in the best of trials, uh, most smokers who try to quit don't quit. And the important data are that there are now more ex-smokers in the United States than current smokers, uh, and that the average smoker who is able to quit, it takes them eight to ten trials. So uh, let me close with six unanswered questions. One is, um, what do we know about the best drugs to help uh, smokers with mental illness quit? And as far as we know now, according to the 2008 updated public health guideline for treating tobacco dependence, These are no different from what uh, smokers without mental illness are using. The second issue is the suicidal risk for varenicline, whose brand name for Pfizer is Chantix. We don't know that yet. We may never know that, in which case we have to balance off uh, the uh, small but finite danger or possible danger of using a drug versus the the very real benefit of stopping smoking. Uh, The third issue is the length of drug treatment. Most drug trials only give uh, 12 weeks of therapy, and yet um, we know from the data from Sharon Hall and others that longer duration therapy has higher quit rates. And it particularly may be for this population, uh, you, want, you might want to look at 6 months, 9 months, even 12 months. It's clearly better to take the smoking cessation drugs, even on a chronic basis, than to keep smoking, although many of the patients themselves aren't going to want to do that. A fourth question, which is more germane to this population, is Is risk reduction, that is, is smoking less a valid second choice? And the data are that you don't save much in health benefits by cutting back, for example, from two packs to one pack or one pack to a half pack. You may save a little bit in cancer risk, but you really don't save much. What you do get, though, is you get to make it easier to quit the next time around. So that is at least a gain, and also you obviously have less secondhand smoke for others. The fifth question that we'd like to have more answers on is how well do quit lines treat this population. And finally, and I don't need to ask the people on this call, but for some of your colleagues, how to motivate clinicians to do a better job in making this an important issue and offering it to patients who'd like to quit, and how do we get more advocacy in places like the, the NIH to give this issue the attention that it, that it really deserves? So, Chuck, uh, thank you, and back to you.
1: Dr. Schroeder, thank you very much. It was a wonderful overview. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. You really hit on a large number of very important topics that that, uh, should lead to a lot of questions from the audience. We are interested in uh, both your experiences uh, in terms of smoking cessation programs that you might have in place uh, in terms of the audience, in addition to uh, questions that you might have for Dr. Schroeder. And in this section of the call, Dr. Zidonis is going to join in with us, and uh, he will provide some color commentary on the questions and engage in the conversation along with us. I'm reminded that uh, back in August of 2006, we did the uh, Varenna uh, article with Dr. David Gonzalez, who is the lead author on that, uh, published on uh, July 5th of 2006. So it has been uh, two and a half years ago, as you suggested before the call. And and so, if I might
2: add, one wonderful side effect of that new drug is that Pfizer did a lot of intensive marketing, both to clinicians and uh, over the, you know, uh, direct to consumer. So you see a lot of TV spots, and what that has done is to give a lot of smokers who were sort of discouraged that they could quit the hope that maybe this is something that could help them. So it's driven them back into trying either cold turkey or to seek out medical help, and that is very good news. And as all of you probably know the c d c just said that we 're at an historic modern low in smoking prevalence we 're down to nineteen point eight percent probably the lowest we 've been since the nineteen twenties fantastic
1: um uh, well let 's turn to caller uh, to questions from our callers now uh, your questions can be um, uh can include anything again or from comments about what programs you have in place that would give us some insights as to uh, how to best manage this population and smoking cessation or questions that you might have for either Dr. Schroeder or Dr. Zadonis. I'm going to turn it back over to Sarah now uh, so that we can bring you into the call. Sarah?
0: Thank you, Dr. Kylo. The question and answer session will be conducted electronically. If you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1, and your telephone keypad. If you're joining us by speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once you've heard your organization, please state your name before prior to posing your question. And once again, that is star one to ask a question at this time, and we'll pause for a moment. And we'll take our first question from Shepherd
3: Health System.
1: If you could just uh, give us your name uh, again, uh, that would be wonderful, and let us know again where you're calling from.
3: Yeah, I'm Dr. Sri Khushlani from the Shepherd Pratt Health System. I have uh, two questions. One is uh, I know mechanistically uh, Chantix will act as an antagonist in the presence of nicotine. So how is that people are combining NRT with uh, with Chantix? That's my first question. And the second question is most uh, people's educational curriculum, uh, whether it's psychiatric residents or psychologists doesn't include much about smoking cessation. I mean, most people I have informally surveyed only have about one hour or two hours in their entire eight years of schooling on this topic when so many people are dying. You know, what, what can be done more from a regulatory front on this, top, on this uh, important health issue?
2: Let me give a crack at those, uh, at those two very critical questions and then ask my colleague, Doug, if he wants to answer. Uh, nicotine is actually, uh, excuse me, vir- vir- varenicline is a partial nicotine agonist. So um, it sits on the receptor and it, um, it gives a little bit of, do- of release of dopamine. And so what we don't know is whether there's enough... Uh, enough uh, real capacity left on the site so that extra nicotine can simulate more, more of the dopamine. And uh, my guess is there will be subsequent trials uh, to test that. Uh, the issue of uh, the training is you're absolutely right, but uh, Dr. Judith Prochaska at UCSF has actually worked with a group called rx for Change, three pharmacy faculty, to develop a curriculum for residents. She's tested it. The residents like it. The residents do better now than they used to. And so and I think we're going to have uh, access to that. And if you want to look up on the website of the Smoking Cessation Leadership Center, which is smoking cessation leadership, all one word, dot ucsf dot edu, that's smoking cessation leadership dot ucsf dot edu, you can get guided to that curriculum. Doug, you want anything?
4: Uh, Yes. Thank you, Steve. uh, You did a fabulous presentation and a great summary for educating other people in the future. So thank you for that and inviting me to participate. Uh, I'm going to make one little comment about varenicline. You're right. It's a partial agonist. There actually is a literature in animals of adding nicotine uh, to varenicline, and you don't get any additional uh, stimulation of uh, dopamine. So that's why Um, That was kind of the fundamental mechanism uh, data that suggested you wouldn't get a benefit from adding, you would not get a benefit from adding nicotine replacement to varenicline clinically. My experience is that patients, of course, try things on their own, and since NRT is available uh, over-the-counter, they've experimented, and in their own experiments have told me that either that route or smoking on top doesn't uh, give them a boost. So. Probably the animal data and and people experimenting is true. I'm not aware of a clinical trial in that area. Second important, very important topic is the issue of training. Uh, It will require all of us to add to our own CME, continuing education, like this event. Uh, I'm assuming the people on this call are the leaders, and so you all are going to have to take leadership in helping to change this culture uh, within mental health settings of one where smoking is the norm to creating a culture where smoking is not the norm So we're all working for that uh, Steve mentioned his website. It is terrific and it will also give you Links to many other uh, websites that will give you toolkits Because uh, I think this is such a great thing that JAMA is doing uh, and for me personally Uh, It's one thing to have these evidence-based practices available. It's another to change clinical practice. And I do believe for this, it will also require organizational change. And that will require leadership, strategic planning, and it will also require training everybody in the basics. You could go to the website and some of the links to get materials. There are also a couple of programs nationally uh, the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, uh, Jill Williams and her terrific group, uh, has a five day training program and a, a couple of smaller day training programs that people could participate. Here at the University of Massachusetts, we have Judy O'Keen and our shop uh, that also does uh, different levels of intensive training. And there also are available online a number of training opportunities. Uh, I do think uh, the staff training will be a critical piece and that each of you on the call will have to be thinking about what could you do individually different in your practice and how do you integrate it into your practice. Uh, There are a number of new behavioral therapy manuals that have come out that also would be training guides. Uh, You could put in your Google, Learning About Healthy Living. It will be also in a couple of the websites on Dr. Schroeder's site, but that will give you a manual you could start using this afternoon, uh, learning about healthy living, and that's for lower motivated uh, patients that you could use in group or individual. Uh, There are also a number of models. Sharon Hall has a model for depression and smoking and how to integrate mood management into helping patients with depression quit smoking. We have manuals for helping people with schizophrenia or uh, or addictions to uh, quit uh, uh, smoking. And how do you integrate tobacco into that? Motivational interviewing, learning, that is also another important um, model. So there's a lot of training out there. It's a matter of access and getting to it. Really great information. And, uh, Steve, can you repeat the website for us again?
1: SmokingCessationLeadership.ucsf.edu.
2: And Smoking Cessation Leadership doesn't have any spaces. Right. Okay.
1: All right, Sarah, next uh, caller. Our
0: next caller is from Harvard University.
1: Go ahead, please. So we we can't hear you. Perhaps you're on mute.
5: I am on mute. There you go. Um, I'm a nurse here at Harvard University, and we're providing smoking cessation to our clients. What I have found, uh, reading the article, I was very surprised to read that smoking is not as even though one thinks it's about self medicating it really isn't so and i'm not seeing a population with with significant mental illness but what i do find is when i'm seeing people there's a lot of underlying depression and anxiety and i end up referring them to mental health services so i'm curious what the link is is it just and why people that are more depressed are ending up smoking
3: and
2: are, are you seeing students or students and faculty
5: students,
2: and faculty, and staff. Um, there, It's a bit of a chicken-and-egg d- dispute that goes way back uh, as to whether people who are more troubled smoke to ease those troubles, or whether they start smoking and that makes them more troubled. Doug, you've been following this for a long time. Want to weigh
4: in? Uh, sure. Um, well, it. it you know, I take a step back and I think about any addiction. You know, why does anybody get into any substance, whether it's nicotine, as that's usually a first one, or alcohol, or those other things. I mean, one is uh, to uh, have a high experience uh, um, to engage with others uh, in some way as peers uh, sneaking and having a cigarette. Uh, and another is that we use medications or, or we do use drugs as a way to alter our feelings, to avoid certain feelings or to get certain feelings, whether you like kind of mania or restlessness or uh, uh, whether you like uh, to manage symptoms of mood difficulties uh, or anxiety. So uh, the trick here isn't, that people might use substances for self-medication. That I believe. The issue is whether God gave the world nicotine for people with schizophrenia and they have to have it. Uh, The argument that's used in clinical settings is we can't pull it from patients because they need it, like medicine. That's what is wrong. Uh, There are other medicines. There are other behavioral therapies. There are other ways to get pleasure and manage those symptoms. So that is, to me, some of the nuances and sort of trickiness of it. It it isn't there because you have to have it, Uh, and you are going to have protracted withdrawal when you quit any substance, and you're going to see symptoms of mood difficulties, anxiety, sleep difficulties, no matter what the substance is, heroin, smoking, cigarettes, uh, cocaine, alcohol.
2: And a question to ponder is why did God put nicotine receptors in our brain? And I'll leave it to others to think of that.
1: Hey, did that get uh, Did that get to your question? Not sure if she's still on the call or not.
5: Yes, I am still here. I just unmuted it. I did, but I believe in your article it said that intuitively one thinks that it's used to self-medicate, but that isn't the case. So that's what confused me. Well, there's there's not a lot of
2: you know if if you. It's been a part of the dictum, the doctrine, that it is self-medication. But when you look carefully at the evidence, the evidence isn't that great, and it's still controversial.
1: Great. Thank you. Okay, Sarah, next caller.
0: Our next caller is from the Department of Mental Health.
6: Hi, my name is Connie suck Hi, Connie. So we have two questions. Um, We wonder how to address uh, smoking cessation with patients whose mental illness is not as stable as the client that you were talking about in your article um, and who are more in the pre-contemplative stage of change. And also the next question is um, how to approach um, a patient who also has a serious substance abuse addiction um, and where to put the emphasis.
1: Great,
2: two excellent questions, Connie. Um, Issue I address in, in, in the article and there again, What's tragic is we don't have as much evidence in this field as we should. The conventional wisdom is it's much more harder to get an unstable patient to quit. Having said that, and getting to your second question, there are some studies that show that in the early stages of treating alcoholism, uh, of treating it, uh, that those patients who are able to stop smoking have a higher rate of being able, a higher probability of being able to stop drinking and a higher probability of being able to, to stay sober. My guess is this is an individual issue, and you clearly shouldn't try to, uh, I guess unless they're in a smoke-free setting, but um, you clearly should be by, guided by the patient's wishes. But one of the arguments that you can make is if the goal is to achieve wellness it is incompatible to be well and to keep smoking.
4: I might add uh, to Steve's comments that uh, framing things as a wellness issue is a terrific one, and SAMHSA is starting to move in that direction. Uh, patients are interested in not having a short life like the data suggests, and so whether it's nutrition, exercise, or smoking cessation is uh, being uh, major efforts in wellness uh, all of those are important for patients who are lower motivated uh, i mentioned the learning about healthy living you could put that in your google and download a group manual approach that targets that specific issue and you'd have handouts for your group or individual work and it'll it has a coaching guide in there for the therapist on how to use the manual On an individual basis, you could also uh, use motivational interviewing as a strategy. Uh, We uh, did a study that is reported in the literature with Mark Steinberg as the lead author. uh, On uh, To get in the study, you had to say you didn't want to quit. And what we found, there were three powerful um, feedback tools that we uh, used that got one third of the patients in a month to go for treatment help. And again, to be in the study, there were people with schizophrenia who said, we don't want to quit. The most powerful was the use of a carbon monoxide meter, which I think should be at every mental health setting, uh, where people would blow into it like an alcohol uh, breathalyzer. And they would, if you're not a smoker, you have a zero. But if you're a heavy smoker, you might get a 20 or a 25 or a 30 and it has lights that go green, yellow, red, and it has a sound. And the patients were very impressed with that and realized there was an immediate impact. And you could tell them that translates to being functionally anemic, that if they had difficulties walking up steps or long distances, that that would probably improve with quitting smoking, and that within three days of quitting smoking, those CO-meter scores could return to normal. Uh, That was very powerful. Another was how many dollars per year they spent on cigarettes. When you present it that way, we realized, and we published another paper, that it was over 25% of their income was going up in smoke. That had a big weight. And the other is we had a checklist of health problems that were either caused by tobacco or worsened, and almost all of them would check off uh, several of them uh and uh that was also uh powerful and all of that could be done in a very short amount of time uh and give people feedback that would increase their motivation. Those are great great suggestions Doug.
6: Yes and we appreciate that. We just have one comment and uh, question on the study that you talked about. Um I'm amazed at the seven, the um I think you mentioned 70% of people with depression or bipolar Um, want to quit, and we don't see any numbers like that at all.
2: We sponsored a survey by uh, the Depression and Bipolar uh, Support Group, and they uh, queried their members, and that's the results that came out. We were very surprised, too. It flies against all all the kind of conventional wisdom. And maybe it's lower, maybe it's 60%, maybe it's 50%. The point is that many of them want to quit, and we shouldn't give up.
4: And Point how we should
1: posted. offer treatment. Thank you very much. Great, Connie. Thank you very much for your question and your input. Really appreciate that, uh, Sarah.
0: I'd like to remind the audience that it is Star One to ask a question. And our next question comes from Colchester East Thames Health Authority.
6: Hi, uh, it's Sandra Tiller. I'm an RN. I work in a small rural uh, community health center, and it was more of a comment, really. I've, I've really enjoyed the content of uh, this episode. Um I just wanted to share with the group some of the things that we're doing in Canada uh on a provincial level. And we have connected with um, our tobacco strategy uh people have applied for a grant from uh Health Canada to because we we've, we've sort of recognized a lot of the things that you've talked about um in your program. Uh and I really appreciate all the strategies that we've heard here today. That's great. And um we've even uh been on some of the websites you've mentioned. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh it's looking very promising for us to um get some funding, which is always the, the big uh sort of hold up uh in working with this uh population group sometimes. So we're hoping to get some uh significant dollars to develop and work with our uh, population group from Health Canada, so I just wanted to share that. Um, What
1: what, what would you plan on doing with that money? What kind of systems are you ready to put in place?
6: Well, um, I'm just uh, a small part of that um, idea, but uh, I understand we're going to funnel it through um, our program, so we'll be working with people with uh, severe and persistent mental health like schizophrenia and uh, bipolar. So they will be working with our program, so we'll be kind of overseeing that. And, uh, there will be group, uh, content. Uh, and we're hoping that it will increase the, um, length of time that people are able to actually have, uh, the, um, the medications and, uh, the nicotine replacement because what we were finding was that people had at most six weeks and of course that was the, uh, really insufficient um in terms of you just skipping along the surface and and not really um doing doing much with that six weeks. Um and I'd also just like to say with regards to uh people that want to quit, um what I've found in working with my patients is that a lot of them are <clears throat> excuse me, older. We're looking at people over thirty five as sort of the people that are coming to me and saying, I would really like to quit. I guess
1: that's really all I have. Um, I well, that's, wa- that's
6: wonderful. suggest
2: uh, three system quick system ahead. changes that if they're not, if people aren't doing and they should do. Yep. One is to flag smoking status in every practice, whether it's mental health practice or not. Second is to ascertain the desire to quit, to see if the number is 70% or 60% or 50% and flag that. And third is to make sure all those patients who are interested in quitting, at the minimum, get a referral to the, to the state quit line.
4: And to add to that, um, I think an important thing would be to do your own audit to see if any of your treatment plans have tobacco dependence on it.
2: And a fifth thing would be to do what Doug did, to make the purchase of a, C, of a carbon mo- monoxide breathalyzer, which I think is a couple hundred bucks, Chuck. And I, I uh, um, uh, Doug and I really have found this extremely helpful. People's eyes light up. I usually do it first, and my levels are like one because I've been walking in the street getting something from a bus, and then they blow in and it's 25. And that's, those numbers speak volumes.
6: Yeah, I really like that. We're going to take a lot of the uh, suggestions out of the program today and uh, pass that on to our tobacco coordinator. So we'll be doing a lot of these things here.
4: Great. Thank you very much. And then another one, um, if you because some of the psychiatric units have short lengths of stay, so you're not going to be doing a lot on the inpatient unit, but uh, we uh, – Train programs to include in their discharge planning, which they all do, uh, a packet of information for people, whether it's the 800 quit line or other resources that are available in the community.
1: Super.
4: Yeah, very, r- really wonderful. And
1: you know, we we tend to treat uh, smoking uh, smoking uh, as a sort of a separate condition. Steve, as you said, when we ought to treat it, uh, not unlike we treat any chronic condition: diabetes, hypertension, uh, coronary artery disease. And we would talk about ambulatory care as a system, uh, and we look at the chronic care model, which most people are familiar with now. It would tell us that we ought to have a registry, a tracking function, as Steve sort of alluded to, that flags the patient. And we ought to, we have developed systems around, uh, these individuals with, uh, who, who are smokers to make sure uh, and to track what interventions we've applied over time and what our success rate is for that. So and you've just you've just given us a number of elements for what that system ought to entail and that's uh really helpful.
0: Uh
1: Sarah, next caller?
0: Thank you. We do have three callers left in the queue. Next we'll go to Eastern
3: State Hospital. Welcome. Hi. Yeah, I'm I'm a psychiatrist here at Eastern State and obviously it's chronically mentally ill individuals. Uh my question is a uh, duration of uh, treatment uh, for nicotine replacement and any particular agent or combination of agent that might be effective. Um, And uh, if you, the author of this article or any colleague can share, I'll appreciate that.
2: In general, um, the more addicted a patient is, that is the more they smoke, the longer they're probably gonna need treatment. And one way to judge that quickly is to find out when they have their first cigarette. If it's when they first get up, then the chances are that uh, they're going to need longer-term treatment and obviously how many cigarettes per day they they smoke, too. Uh, As as has been mentioned, um, the normal, uh, the, the FDA says you should treat for 12 weeks, but I think with the population we're talking about, unless... They're, you know, unless they really don't want to keep taking the medicine or unless you think they've got a good shot at, at quitting after 12, I would go at least 24 and may, maybe longer. Doug has probably seen more of these patients than I have, so I would bow to his wisdom. Uh,
4: so I would, I would pick up on what Steve said, and I would separate the NRTs, the nicotine replacements, with the other options. Uh, and Some of what we're going to now talk about is essentially off-label, both in dosing amount and also in dosing length. So you can look at the PDR to see uh, what would be recommended there. Uh, You might want to look up, so I'm going to talk about a couple things. I'll start with NRT. One, look up Richard Hurt, H-U-R-T. He's written some nice articles that look at perhaps the right way to think about dosing. If one of your patients smokes three packs per day, that's a lot of cigarettes. That's a lot of nicotine they're consuming. If the average person breathes in about one milligram of nicotine per cigarette, but the average person with schizophrenia breathes in about two to three milligrams of nicotine per cigarette, uh, think about the math. That's a lot of nicotine they're taking in, and a 21 milligram patch may not be enough. Uh, and so a lot of nicotine treatment specialists actually use higher than. Um, the PDR would suggest, of mixing both the patch and the gum. And or Richard a, Heard has been
2: known to put as many as three patches on a patient with a heavy history of smoking.
4: Right. So there, And he has nice studies showing how he correlates CO meter scores or cotinine levels with the amount of nicotine replacement. But I, I'm giving you sort of the uh, cheap way to do it, which is to guesstimate how many milligrams of nicotine per cigarette Uh, and particularly with this population that smokes it down to the butt, as Steve had suggested. So, uh, also, most of us will do it a lot longer than what the PDR suggests, and uh, uh, using nicotine replacement for a year and perhaps tapering down the dose is, you know, very regular and routine. Uh, Varenicline, because of the nature of being a partial agonist, is a solo treatment, and so in some ways may have some advantages, particularly for uh, someone who's at a very high uh, amount of nicotine replacement because you wouldn't blend the NRTs uh, together. That does have data, again, not with our patient population, which are studies currently going on, but, and we hopefully will find out in a couple of years what they find. So clinically, uh, so Veraniklean in its own studies and uh, average Smokers uh does you, you can use it for up to a year, and that is uh, probably a better length of treatment because this is a chronic condition they are going to have um, difficulties with stress points in their life uh they're so they're going to uh, need your support or quit line support in addition to the medication so medications alone isn't the answer either for them
3: that should be the
4: goal
1: do we find that there are many uh, people who are ready to go from really heavy use, say two packs a day, to immediate cessation, or do you find that uh, tapering their cigarette use, uh, if they're able to do that, is is a is a marker for willingness to quit? In uh,
2: uh, You'll find some funny cases where people are heavy smokers and something happens, they want to quit right then. They are, some of them aren't even in the contemplation stage and they do it. But by and large, the less you smoke and the more you want to smoke, the higher your chances are to, to uh, want, want to
4: quit. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, uh, We use both strategies. Uh, and I think about the last 10 cigarettes as really being the physical dependent cigarettes. Uh, so there's... There's usually some ability to move people down from the three packs to two or one and a half, uh, but the last ten are really the tough ones, uh, for a lot of people. But as Steve, uh, suggested, some, it, it's idiosyncratic. Some people are, want to quit. They're ready even with a high amount, but uh, I tend to try to taper. Right. Great. Great.
3: I have a follow up question if possible. Please. Uh, the goal of the treatment should be to switch or to help a patient to quit uh, and get off nicotine completely in a uh, uh, mutually agree, agreed upon and reasonable time frame.
2: Uh, I'm sorry, what, what do you mean by
3: switch? Switch from uh, that to encourage them to quit smoking and go on uh, nicotine replacement therapy or uh, uh, with the eventual goal to quit even using that or would that be okay if they say I'm going to quit smoking but give me the gum, nicotine gum, or give me the patch and I'm going to use it forever?
2: Oh, if you give me a choice between someone who's going to take the gum or the patch in perpetuity and smoke in perpetuity, that's a slam dunk. Uh, there's very, very little harm from chronic use of NRG, and there's huge harm from smoking. So uh, I wouldn't see that as a failure.
4: So I guess I would agree with Steve, but I have a slightly different spin on it. So if I'm hearing what you're asking um i i do think it's reasonable that people would get off nicotine replacement at some time and you would talk about this as a transitionary uh tool that might be used for a year or so uh and then some will be happy to eventually get off it uh now i totally agree with steve cuz i do have some patients who continue to use two three sticks of gum uh for four five six years after quitting a couple packs a day habit, and I have no problem at all. Uh, I think again the analogy might be uh, the use of buprenorphine for heroin, and you might do that for a couple years or less and get them off it, or methadone they might be on for a long time.
1: Fantastic, Sarah. Do we have time for one more question?
4: Yes, sir.
0: Next we'll go to University of Wisconsin.
7: Great. Hi, this is Eric Koligenstein from University of Wisconsin. One I mean, of the real leaders in this
2: field. You're going to teach us, Eric.
7: No, 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 no. you're your, your question. What is it? Um, behavioral toxicity. You mentioned that with and In my experience, it seems like nobody owns behavioral toxicity that uh, I've seen in people quitting with psychiatric disorders who do cold turkey, who use nicotine replacement, who are on bupropion and Vareniclean. I was wondering uh, your, particularly Doug's experience with this.
2: Let, let me make one quick comment and then hear from Doug. I, I think there is a subsection of our society that is very suspicious of medicines in general, of the pharmaceutical industry in particular, of the fact that the pharmaceutical industry with some drugs has hidden data. And I think they're seizing on this mm-hmm. as another example of duplicity, and therefore and there are some very prominent people right. in, the, in the uh in the tobacco c- control movement, who told me they hope it goes off the market? So mm-hmm. that's as a background that yeah. I yeah, because I, think I, I take this seriously.
7: yeah I don't see that be you know known owns behavioral toxicity at all. I think it's a risk for everyone, and it's just I think you're right. The, so does, a risk that's no greater than any other risk we would take into consideration yeah. in per- prescribing treatments for any other person. But I'd be interested in Doug's opinion on that.
4: Sure. <clears throat> From both my own uh, experience. And also from talking to hundreds of psychiatrists who've been using uh, varenicline in both the setting of smoking cessation programs as well as in mental health settings, you know, by and large, the medicine works very well. And you know, there's no magic bullet for everybody, but it works mm-hmm. very well. And the, the percentage is a low percentage of the behavioral toxicity. But having said that. These are all people who do monitor their patients. And I do think one of the risks that when Paxil came out, that it also needed to be monitored. And we did have side effects and symptoms, and we did realize if somebody just prescribes and doesn't follow up with a patient, that mm-hmm. there can be risks. So even though the numbers are fairly low, and even with the data that's been reported fairly low, but because the side effects could be more severe, I think it Warrants us to be appropriate in monitoring and following up with our patients as we would yeah. with any other med, but uh, I think uh, that to me is the issue, not that it's a bad drug that I agree is this for everybody, but it's it, it is a risk, and it mm-hmm. is something we have to take serious, and we do have to monitor and talk mm-hmm. with patients and inform them of the risks but let them know it's a smaller percentage, but we'll check with them and if and what to do if they start to feel some of the symptoms.
7: Right, no, I agree. I mean, I've had more patients who've become suicidal going cold turkey than I've had on varenicine, you know.
2: And that's what makes it so difficult to determine whether there is any risk. Chuck, I think I need to state, as is in the article, that our center as a center and me as a person takes no industry money.
1: Well, thank you, Steve, I appreciate that. Um, and we are at the end of the call. Any last comments? Uh, I would like to remind people of a couple of the uh, web resources that were discussed on the call. Uh One is your your website, Steve, the sm- Smoking Cessation Leadership. Uh, dot UCSF. Dot EDU. Uh, you could probably just Google Smoking Cessation Leadership Center as well, and you'll get there. It's a national program office uh, sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.
2: And, and the American Legacy Foundation.
1: Great, and the American Legacy Foundation. And uh, what Doug mentioned earlier, living, uh, see, learning about healthy living. And if you just Google that, it'll come right up. And that's a manual that uh, Dr. Zadonis uh, helped to write, and that's uh, really wonderful as well. I want to thank both of you, Dr. Shorter and Dr. Uh, Zodonas, for your participation today. really was a highly energized uh, and very informative call.
2: Well, thanks to all of you. I think we're at the dawn of a new era where we have a tremendous opportunity to help these patients. So God bless, and let's, let's get the word out, and let's make those system changes.
1: Thank you. As a reminder, Arthur in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will take place on April 15th. And the article is Self-Care of Physicians Caring for Patients at the End of Life. Author in the Room is sponsored by the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. And we really thank you for your participation today. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Good day.
0: And once again, that does conclude today's presentation. Thank you for your attendance, and have a nice day.